0: God's men should never mistake the, the humbleness and the lowliness and the long suffering of God as if He's forgotten about our sin. I mean, He has forgiven us of our sin. He remembers them no more. But wait a minute, judgment begins at the house of God. You're going to die, and everything you lived for outside of the will of Christ is going to burn. Everything. A fortress is strength, a fortress is might not only a center of defense but a place of strategic planning and offense our god does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us he expects us to take up his banner and fight the darkness with his light you want to know what the biggest problem with america is? the pulpit in this country Gave in to public pressure, gave in to political correctness, one of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I am your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very deep subject to cover today, but first... Please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material you can listen to and read. Check us out our fan page on Facebook when you type in at Our Mighty Fortress. The page is growing more and more every day. You can also visit our website at OurMightyFortress.com. We have a host of media there. You're going to find articles, videos, and even our merch store to help support the work. If you feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through the website and our established PayPal link. If we've helped you in some way through our work, please tell us at ourmightyfortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I would like to introduce a poem that I found very moving and that inspired the title of this podcast. The poem is titled, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, by Alan Seeger. It illustrates a subject that touches us all, though we don't often consider it on a daily basis, and that is the subject of death. We'll begin with the background and context in which the author was writing, because really it brings out the words of the poem. We're going to look at the life and work of Seeger, and ultimately, what ultimately led him to write in this poem. I then want to explore this concept in the imagery that this particular author paints. We'll then look at how it's more than just a simplified situation that leads to the end of human life, but the overall problem that we as man face. It can be said that this is the poetical epitome of the gruesome depravity of man before God. In fact, by the end, I want to give you hope and a glimpse into eternity before the judge of all the earth. There are consequences to this great problem of sin and death, but there is hope found in Jesus Christ. With that introduction, let's get right into this. The poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, was written by Alan Seeger around the spring of 1916 or so, and it was during World War I. Seeger was an American war poet who served in the French Foreign Legion. While the Battle of the Somme was raging on July 4, 1916, he was shot in the stomach during an attack on Bellion Centaire. Before I read the poem, I want to build the context of what happened during what was known as the Great War or World War I. This is so you can envision what the author saw during his time. First, World War I started with the assassination of a politician, or the Archduke Ferdinand, on June 28, 1914, in Sarajevo. In the aftermath of that, Austria-Hungary would declare war on Serbia, then Russia would declare war on Austria-Hungary, Germany declared war on Russia and France, and finally Great Britain and France would declare war on Germany and (laughs) Austria-Hungary. Sounds complicated, I know. But that was the time. It sounds crazy. But all of this was the result of the militarism of the time, and Europe had been a powder keg just waiting to explode. Each of the nations had been competing with each other for territories and faraway lands. Now the war was going to be brought closer to home. What's funny about this whole situation is in the beginning, all of the sides thought that the war was just going to be only a few weeks long and just with minimal casualties. I mean, they made this war as some glorious thing and that everybody's just going to be home real quick. This was the first major conflict where new weapons would be introduced that would forever change the landscape of how war was conducted. Soldiers would no longer fight and fire while staged in long formations in front of their enemies. The introduction of massive artillery pieces and machine guns would easily cut down any who were so foolish to bunch up on the battlefield. About 35 years later, during World War II, General Douglas MacArthur would say, quote, Whoever said the pen is mightier than the sword obviously never encountered automatic weapons. End quote. <laughs> World War I also introduced trench warfare, which produced the most miserable living and fighting conditions that had been thus far. Warfare in the trenches of what was called the Western Front produced unimaginable horrors. The battlefields were scenes of hellish landscapes of barbed wire, shell holes, mud, and injured and dying men. Periodically, the high command on either side of the trenches would order an offensive that would bring with starting with an artillery barrage to flatten out the enemy barbed wire and leave the enemy in a state of shock. This was supposed to soften enemy positions, you know, to which a mass of soldiers would then just climb out of the trench and make their way towards the enemy trenches. This, of course, is not going to work very well, given that that particular enemy would then come to the Uh, Machine gun nests that were there and would cut down hundreds and thousands of men before they even got close to the trenches. The period of 1916 to 1917 is considered the Great Slaughter, where millions of young men were killed. The Battle of the Somme was an Allied offensive to strike German positions and take key territory just past the trenches. This was supposed to take place on July 1st, 1916. The British Third Army was to make a diversionary attack on a northern position named Gamacourt. The southern 16 units, comprised of British and French troops, were expected to take the regions of Beaumont Hamel and several other places. For a week straight, there were about 1.6 million artillery shells that hammered German positions with over 1,400 guns. I could not imagine the sound and the constant shelling that would take place. On either side, the constant sounds of artillery just hammering away, hammering away. And of course, if you're on the receiving end, the constant explosions you know, on the German side must have been mind-boggling. The attack was supposed to take place at 7.30 a.m. on the eve of the assault. But there were reports that the shelling had not caused as much damage to the German barbed wire fences and uh, the trench positions. To top this off, there was captured prisoners that told of the Germans knowing exactly when and where the British were to attack. You know, it never fails to amaze me. ...that the British commanders still decided to go forward with the attack at those particular designated times. (laughs) Being former military myself, if I had known my commanders were going to throw me and my men under the metaphorical bus... ...there might have been a mutiny, I'll tell you that much. The British started off by detonating mines dug under the German positions and then advanced out of the trenches... The Germans came out of their positions to set up machine guns and then proceeded to mow down the British and the French by the hundreds and thousands. There were successes in the southern part of the territory due to the Germans not thinking that the offensive would take place so far south, but there was a massive loss of life on the first day, and it was utterly staggering. The Germans lost 12,000 men, the French lost 7,000 men, and the British lost 57,000 men. This easily became the bloodiest day in the history of the British army. Unfortunately, this was only going to be the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and that would rage on for another four months. Think about that. It would end when the freezing rain and mud came in, and the Allies would have only advanced a total of 10 miles. The total cost of casualties during that long battle was 430,000 British, 200,000 French, and 450,000 Germans. The Battle of the Somme would be the bloodiest in history. Now think about that for a moment. Over 1 million men died for just 10 miles of ground. Being a former military member myself in the United States Marine Corps... I can hardly imagine such massive slaughter. Over a hundred years later, they are still digging up bodies from what used to be the trenches in France and the advancements of the Battle of the Somme. It really gives me shivers to even think about it. There was a documentary I saw on this and how the archaeologists were just thrilled to finally lay these men in proper burial sites. So sad. Believe it or not, the Battle of the Somme would prove to be a you know, detrimental to the Germans and would end up being a vital step on the road to victory for the Allies. At what cost of life? Over a million men, dead, gone. With that bit of background, this brings us to our war poet, Alan Seeger, who would die on the fourth day of the Battle of the Somme. Before the battle, he had written his poem as well as many letters back home describing the environment. Let me read to you what the Poetry Foundation says about this war poet. They say, quote, In his letters, Seeger told of crowded quarters, filth, cold, and misery, but only his romantic views of the war make their way into his poetry, unlike that of more realistic and anti-war poets such as Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. His admiration for Sir Philip Sidney and familiarity with the Age of Chivalry caused him to cast his comrades as medieval crusaders. Ever a fatalist, the outcome of the war was less interest to Seeger than the glory of comradeship and adventure. Seeger's poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, tells of an expected meeting between the narrator and Death himself. Though the narrator of the poem regrets leaving behind life's pleasures and love, he does not fear or abhor Death. Instead, he is stoic, making the rendezvous a matter of honor, quote. I would now like to read you this man's poem, and I want you to try to envision how Seeger saw the war. He writes, I have a rendezvous with death. At some disputed barricade, when spring comes back with rustling shade, and apple blossoms fill the air, I have a rendezvous with death. When spring brings back blue days and fair, it may be he shall take my hand and lead me into this dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill. When spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear, God knows t'were better to be deep, Pillowed in silk and scented down, Where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath, Where hushed awakenings are dear. But I have a rendezvous with death, At midnight in some flaming town, When spring trips north again this year, And I, to my pledged word, am true, I shall not fail that rendezvous. Wow, such very powerful words about a man in his imagery from his perspective of the various spots on the battlefield. He begins with his perception of his coming death, which (laughs) consequently would come after he penned this poem. We see his vision of his doom and then the battle scenes on which it may occur. He gives some disputed barricade or battered hill or Flaming Town as his possible death sites. He counters each negative with a seemingly positive of the environment around him. He talks of the apple blossoms or the first meadow flowers as an example. Think of the contrast in his mind when nature goes through its cycles. There can be such life blooming in the spring around him, but is met with the bloody death and destruction that man brings upon the green scenery. This is ever the picture of contrast when it comes to what God brings as life, and man comes with his destructive nature and does what he does best, sin against God. They say that young men make excellent soldiers because they lack the fear of death. This is true. This is the very reason that American General Eisenhower, and of course, future president after that, decided to put fresh non-combat veterans on the ships heading to storm the beach of Normandy during World War II. In the military, when you deploy to a war zone, the reality of death hits you like a cold splash of water on your face. This can be especially true when friends... Other comrades and brothers are killed while in a firefight or something such as an improvised explosive device or IED. Those in war, though young, are faced with the reality of death. When Siga wrote this poem, the romantic view of war had faded and the utter reality of his death emerged. Each war does have its own brutality, but the results are generally the same. Tens of thousands to millions of people will die or be traumatic casualties. This doesn't always happen in battle, but can happen just being in the wrong place at the wrong time while the fighting is going on. Maybe it's the result of war or mass starvation or other economic hardships. War affects the environment around them and not just the combat soldiers. For instance, in World War I, it is estimated that around 9 to 10 million military personnel died. It's met equally with over 10 million civilians who were killed who had nothing to do with the war fields. Think about that. But it gets worse. Not too far later, there would be World War II, and the numbers would just be even more terrible. It is estimated that 21 to 25 million military personnel died while over 50 to 56 million civilians were casualties. Those numbers are utterly staggering. Let me give another example that might hit a little closer to home. I'd like to present a different perspective on how we see live video taken during previous wars. I read much about history, and I really love a good documentary. Reading about the past is kind of my thing. I'll never forget what occurred to me when I was watching a World War II documentary about B17s flying over to bomb Germany. Of course, um, during that time the the uh, allies were pushing onto Germany, and of course German fighters would be in the air shooting down the bombers. Well, another aircraft filmed a fellow b17 being shot down by a German fighter as it descended in flames toward the ground. I realized I just watched about 10 men descend to their deaths in 1944. That really happened. It was truly sobering, and when you really just get the gravity of what you just saw, it's really deep. Now, of all the wars that have been fought in man's history, why is it that Alan Seeger's poem about his experience in World War I strike a sensitive spot in the hearts of those who read it. It reminds me of King Solomon, the man of wisdom, given so by God. He said something pretty profound in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 and verse 2. It said, quote, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. End quote. When I first read that short background to World War I, you were probably listening and thinking about how terrible it was that so many people had gotten slaughtered. Why do we feel that way? It is the law of God that's written upon our hearts that make us cringe at such brutality. It is only when we endure or even take part in such that our hearts harden to it and it no longer moves us we have to think, what would a person give to save his or her own life if they knew their rendezvous with death was soon? What kind of monetary amount could we set? In the grand story of that is the book of Job, Satan says to God about Job's life, quote, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. End quote. This is as true as it gets because most of the world, Fears death. When we read Alan Seeger's poem, we see the cry of a man's soul as he knows he's going to his death and there's nothing he can do about it. The irony is him writing and looking at the life of nature around him despite his pending doom. Modern psychology teaches us that man is basically good and they just need to be educated into goodness. But that is not the reality of history. World War I was filled with Western nations, and that brutality took place. Education has nothing to do with the nature of man. How many of man's wars shall one describe, or how many tragedies of human misery shall one paint to illustrate our utter depravity? the God of the jail Christian scriptures tells us about the base wickedness of man and his end in the book of Psalms chapter 58 and verse three, it says, quote, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies end quote, this next set of verses really depicts the nature of man. If we are truly honest with ourselves, it is the book of Romans, chapter three, starting in verse ten, it says, quote, as it is written, There was none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the ways of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. End quote. When you think about it, here in America, we generally don't have a clue when it comes to what real suffering is like when compared to the rest of the world. We get so caught up with everyday life and really a life in luxury when it's compared to the poverty of much of the world. We get so caught up that we don't even realize our own mortality. We may not be some warlord in Somalia that's indiscriminately killing people, but our sins, however minor we consider them, are just as evil in the sight of a holy God. Now that's tough on our consciences, I know, even for us who are believers, to think that We're no different because of our base before God, our base sinful nature. That thought makes us cringe. We are quick to justify our sins, but God instead calls man to repentance. As Alan Seeger wrote about having a rendezvous with death, man too overall has his date already set for him. It's not always in some given case where we know it can be in the next coming days. Many of us have not endured what Seeger had gone through, but it can still happen in something as simple as a drive to work. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, And as an appointed unto men wants to die, but after this, the judgment. Because of this, there are implications to what we do with our lives. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior from your sins, you must choose to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and starting in verse 3, it says, quote, For I delivered unto you first of all, of which that I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, End quote, The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. To do otherwise is to stand before Christ in your own sins, and there is nothing that you can do to blot out those sins and that stain that's upon you. If you can't come to that humility, you will be judged, as the Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 8, and You will be cast into the lake of fire. Just know that if you turn your heart in repentance and trust what Christ did on the cross for you, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins for all eternity. You do not have to bear that sin stain anymore as Christ already paid the price for you on the cross. You can forever call Christ your savior and you will receive that promise of eternity with him. If you're already a Christian, The date of our meeting at the judgment seat of Christ is also pending. And while we're not going to be judged for our sins, as in condemnation to the lake of fire, we will be judged for what we do in our service to Christ. This is important because there's still work to do as the world descends in the chaos. We live in a world of war and death, and it's only going to get worse as the world conforms to the image of the person known as the Antichrist. There are so many in this world that need the light of hope in you and the message of good news of salvation. Just know that there's not going to be peace until the Prince of Peace comes and his name is Jesus Christ. We have a rendezvous with death, and we're left with its implications, what are you going to do about it? I want to thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.